Okay. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 is the first reference there in your notes. Just a little bit of review so that we can continue on in our study. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15. Why don't you read this or recite this with me with a little bit more volume enthusiasm than we did the Proverbs 3 passage. Here we go. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What we're focusing on and emphasizing there is study to show thyself. Thyself. You study for this purpose, for God to approve of your life. So here's what we're talking about. We embarked last week on a study of the doctrinal statement of the Bible Baptist Church. What is a doctrinal statement? A doctrinal statement is a summary of, 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 as a church, our most core and foundational beliefs. These are the beliefs that unite us together in a local assembly of believers, people who come to our church. Presumably, they come to our church because they believe the things that we believe. And so what we want to do is walk through that doctrinal statement and show you where those beliefs come from in the Bible. Explain to you why our church believes what it believes, but my purpose in doing this, we're going to take a lot of time to do it, is not just so you'll know what our church believes. I would hope that you're at least somewhat familiar with that already, but our purpose and intent, more more importantly, is that I want to challenge you to figure out what you believe for yourself. Don't just let it be what our church believes. Don't just let it be what the pastor believes. Don't just let it be what the youth pastor that you love so much believes. Don't just let it be what your parents believe. I want to ask you, what do you believe? you got to figure that out. Why do you believe what you believe? You need to be able to not just identify what it is you believe, but but develop the ability to articulate those beliefs and and defend those beliefs because, as we said last week, you can't expect as you go through life, those beliefs are going to be challenged. And when those beliefs are called into question, it's going to take a lot more than the preacher said or my parents taught me or my church's position is you are going to need your own beliefs because if you hadn't figured it out for yourself by that point, you're going to be caught off guard and you're going to be in trouble. So we started last week in the only place that a serious doctrinal statement can start and that is with our statement, our position on what we believe about the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God, and it's printed there in your bulletin. I want you to be familiar with this. In fact, you can. Uh, there is there is some incentive for learning these statements that'll help you with your youth trips and or mission trip. That's in your Bible workbook. Look there for details. But the statement is: We believe in the absolute authority of the Holy Scriptures. We believe the original manuscripts were given by inspiration of God and were without error. We believe the God who gave his word to man has taken upon himself the responsibility for its preservation. We believe the incorruptible word of God which cannot pass away is available to the English-speaking world in the authorized King James Version. This Bible is our final authority in all matters. And as we said last week, it'll take us several several sessions to unpack uh, everything contained in that one paragraph. We started last time with the doctrines of inspiration 
and preservation. Inspiration, again, referring to how God gave his word to man in the first place, referring to the original documents penned by men like Moses and Paul and John and David and Isaiah and, and all the rest. Inspiration is that the, the original autographs, the first time men wrote down these words from God, but the point is they are the words of God. God gave the men the words to write down. Of course, he used their own personalities and styles and backgrounds, and you can see that coming through these books that comprise the Bible. Um, it's not; it wasn't some sort of robotic operation where you know the, 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 some force outside of themselves was causing their hand to move and write the letters. You read First Corinthians chapter seven, and when Paul wrote that letter. He was not aware of the divine inspiration behind it. He said something like, I think I have the Lord with this. And, 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 and what he thought was absolutely true. Those words were inspired scripture. But anyway, inspiration, how God gave the word in the first place. But then you have to add to that preservation. And preservation is what God did so that we can have those words in our hand Today, if you have inspiration but you don't have preservation, you got nothing because you don't have any of the originals and you haven't for a long, 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 long time. But today we're confident that what we have is inspired scripture because the God who gave his word promised to preserve his word so that we could have it today. And that promise is laid out in passages that we studied last week, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture given by inspiration of God, Psalm 12, 6 and 7, the words, Lord, are pure words. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, and many other passages that we're not going to take the time to review again this morning because we want to move forward. And the next logical question is this, if the God who inspired his word, perfect and without error, then promised to preserve his word, perfect and without error, then where is that found today? Is there a book? Now, if, if, if God's promise is true, there has to be a book that contains the 100% pure and perfect inspired words of God. What is that book? Where is it found? Our position as a church, and I, I want to challenge you to make this your own personal position. I want to give you reasons why. But our position is that the, the pure, perfect, inspired, inerrant, infallible words of God today in 2021, February 28, 2021, for the English-speaking world is found in the authorized King James Bible. And the reasons why we believe that the King James Bible is perfect and without error is the inspired word of God that would take an entire Bible school course to just begin to cover all of those reasons. We're going to try to condense it down. I had, I had originally had great ambitions. We'd do it in one week. It's just not going to be possible. We might be able to do this in two weeks. And just a summary of the reasons why we believe God's Word is preserved for the English-speaking world in the King James Bible. I've got seven basic reasons that I'll give you this morning, but before we start into that list, let's, let's, let's just back up real quick one more time to make sure we completely understand that the reason we believe that such a thing would even exist is what we studied last time. 
The only reason this is even an issue or even a question is if we believe in the doctrines of inspiration and preservation. Our position is referred to as a King James only position. That, that we believe the King James Bible is the pure and perfect Word of God. That is a King James only position. Have you ever heard of anybody who is NIV only? You haven't and you won't. Have you ever heard of anybody who is ESV only? You haven't and you won't. Have you ever heard of anybody who is New American Standard only? You haven't and you won't. The only, only position is the King James only position. Why is that? It's because this position is based upon a foundational belief in the doctrines of inspiration and preservation as laid out in the scriptures. If you don't believe that, God promised to give us a perfect Bible today, then that's why you can use whatever version you prefer, whatever version makes you happy, whatever version you think is best. And there can be, you know, some kind of debate and argument as to which translation is better than another translation, but nobody is anything else only because they don't believe literally in the scriptures we read last week. So that's the foundational issue. Now, if, if, if you hold to that position that God did inspire his words and preserve his words, promised to preserve his words, then figuring out which translation or which version or which Bible fulfills that promise, that becomes pretty cut and dry. That becomes really simple. And I'll give you these reasons, and they're not necessarily in order of importance, though I do uh, hope and trust they'll follow somewhat logically. Fill this out as we go along. The first reason I believe the King James Bible is the perfect word of God for the English-speaking people is manuscripts. Manuscripts, you want to get fancy, call it manuscript evidence. But manuscripts, what are manuscripts? Okay, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. That's what they tell us. Nobody living today has ever seen those originals, but we, we, we understand, we accept that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Perhaps a little bit of Aramaic thrown in, but predominantly in Hebrew. The New Testament was written originally in Greek. Old Testament written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek. But as, as we've stressed over and over again, nobody has those originals, not even the Stetson Library. Okay? But those originals were copied, and those copies were copied, and those copies were copied, and those copies were copied, and, 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 and so on down through history, those copies began to be disseminated and translated, and the copies of 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 the originals, we refer to those as manuscripts, okay? These copies of the originals that are still in existence, we call that extant, those copies are what we refer to as manuscripts and there are thousands well over 5000 extant that is in existence greek manuscripts in existence that underlie the new testament okay they have they have found these ancient documents these old documents these copies of the copies of the copies of the copies more than 5000 of them okay over 95% of those manuscripts in existence agree with the New Testament of the King James Bible. 
over 95% of those line up exactly with what we have in the King James, and that sets the King James Bible apart from any English translation since 1881. Okay? The revisions in the modern translations, the, the changes that have been made in every newer English Bible have been based primarily on two manuscripts. Now, we've got over 5,000 and over 95% of those 5,000 that agree with the King James, but the reason modern Bibles read differently is they found these two manuscripts, one of them discovered in the 1800s in a monastery on Mount Sinai, on, on what supposedly is Mount Sinai, they found it in the dump of the monastery. That's Sinaiticus because it was found on Sinai. They found it in the, in, in, in the trash collection area. This guy named Tischendorf, 1859, found this manuscript. A monk brought him the rest of the manuscript. But that manuscript reads differently than most of the rest of the 5,000. But the modern versions based their translations on that manuscript. Now, what's interesting about that manuscript, not only where it was found, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote to you from an article that is not written by someone who believes the King James Bible. Okay? Listen to what this guy says about that manuscript. Sinaiticus has heavily influenced the translation work of modern Bible versions. Though it is considered by some scholars to represent an original form of the text, it is also recognized as the most heavily corrected early New Testament manuscript. Let me read that again. It is also recognized as the most heavily corrected early New Testament manuscript. What does that mean? Well, what did they do? They took the originals and they made copies, and they made copies of the copies and copies of the copies and copies of the copies. What that statement just admitted is that Sinaiticus is not a copy. They, they did not sit down and just copy what the original said, they corrected and amended what they were working from to take out the parts they didn't like. You see, there were heresies that arose in the church from the very first century. People that did not believe in the deed of Jesus Christ or the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity or salvation by grace. Those heresies attacked the early church and of course, those heresies are, are not found in the Bible. And so the doctrines that established the, or the passages that established the true doctrine, those passages had to be changed to line up with the heresy. And such is the case with Sinaiticus. That's why the changes in the modern versions affect things like the blood atonement of Jesus and the deity of Jesus Christ. And we'll study that uh, later on. So the other manuscript is called Vaticanus. See if you can figure out where that one was found. Incorrect. Try again. He said Berlin. Okay, the Vatican was found in the Vatican. I'm not sure if I pronounced the end of that properly and the emphasis I gave the last four letters, but I do believe it's fitting. Okay, so it was found in the Vatican Library, and, and like Sinaiticus, it dates back to the middle of the 4th century. They, they say this manuscript comes from somewhere around the 350s. Okay? The first person to ever use it as a source document after it was found was a man by the name of Erasmus, but he viewed it as too erratic 
and he never followed it when it differed from all of the other Greek texts, the received text, the textus receptus it's called. So we've got two manuscripts, one found in the trash dump of a monastery, the other found in the Vatican, which have obviously been altered and changed and corrected and rejected as trustworthy by men like Erasmus. And the only reason they get such special attention is that they're old. Okay, they're old. They're older than the other manuscripts, the more than 95% of them that agree with the King James Bible. But think about that for just a moment. The fallacy is that older equals better. But does older really equal better? Think about it for just a moment because instead of working in their favor, the age of the manuscripts actually speaks for something else. The reason the other manuscripts aren't as old is because they didn't last as long. And the reason they didn't last as long is because they were actually used and passed around and copied over again. The fact these manuscripts are old means that they were, for the most part, rejected Because a manuscript that would have been used, it would not have survived all of those millennia. Now, somebody gave me a box this week, and this box was full of Bibles that belonged to Brother Sam. And what a blessing that one man would spend so much time in the Word of God that he has gone through and completely worn out about eight to ten Bibles. You know why? Because he read them every day. Because he brought it to church three times a week. Because he combed through the pages. And, right, you, a, a Bible that's falling apart, have you ever heard this quote? A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone whose life is not. <laughs> okay, so the more you use your Bible, the, the more often you're going to have to replace it. Same with the manuscripts. The more they were used... Well, the quicker they wore out, and, and so they were duplicated and copied, the fact these are old doesn't mean that they're better. Now, as far as Old Testament manuscripts, there was an exciting discovery in 1947, the caves of Qumran near the Dead Sea by some Bedouin shepherds, and what they discovered, something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls contained 981 texts, that dated back to before the time of Christ. And I think scholars were real excited because they thought they were going to find something that undermined the King James Bible, but what they actually found is that those manuscripts line up perfectly with what we have in the Old Testament of the King James Bible. So our Old Testament is confirmed by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's manuscripts. Number two, history. History. In itself, the history of the English Bible is a fascinating study. It overlaps with the history of the development of the English language. It overlaps with the history of the Protestant Reformation that swept the European continent at the beginning of the 16th century. And it overlaps with one of the most earth-shattering inventions of all of history. What world-changing invention appeared in the 1400s, the 1450s? It was Johann Gutenberg's printing press. Nothing changed the world 
like Gutenberg's printing press, changed the world. What did that lead to? Well, that led to the, the proliferation of the publication and dissemination of books, including the most important book, and that's God's Word. So back up just a little bit in time, in 1382, John Wycliffe completes the first complete English translation of the Bible. His, his life, an incredible life, an incredible study. Next, William Tyndale, who famously said to a Catholic priest at the home of Sir John Walsh, he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. You ever heard this? I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, the boy who drives the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou knoweth. And Tyndale devoted the rest of his life to that work. Tyndale translated the entire Bible. He did not live long enough to see all of it published because he was martyred in 1536. He was burned at the stake. And his dying prayer was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And every subsequent English translation relied heavily on Tyndale's work. Then there, uh, then there was the Coverdale Bible in 1535, the Matthews Bible in 1537, the Great Bible in 1539, the Geneva Bible in 1560, the Bible quoted by Shakespeare and brought to the New Colonies by the Pilgrims, the Bishop's Bible in 1568, all leading up to the Hampton Court Conference in 1604, their authorization of the translation by King James, which was completed in 1611. But we're talking about the history of the English Bible. How did the King James Bible come about? Well, all of these things were working together at the same time in history, and it was just the perfect time for God to do what he promised he would do and bring the English-speaking world, which has become the predominant language around the world, bring the English-speaking world his pure and perfect Word. Okay, so who produced the first complete English Bible? John Wycliffe. Who prayed, Lord, open the King of England's eyes? William Tyndale. What is the gunpowder plot? Well, the gunpowder plot is an excellent example of the, of, of the protection and providence of God leading up to the translation of the King James Bible. Not only on the men who carried out the work, but the man who authorized it. There, the gunpowder plot took place in 1605, and it was a failed assassination attempt against King James I by a group of English Catholics. This was a Jesuit conspiracy. Their plan was to start a revolt and restore England under the control of the Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Mother Church. The plot was revealed to authorities in an anonymous letter on the 26th of October in 1605, and that prompted a search of the House of Lords on the evening of November 4th, in which a man by the name of Guy Fawkes was discovered guarding 36 barrels of gunpowder. They were going to blow the entire building to smithereens. Talk about a, a riot on the Capitol. They weren't just going to break windows and steal Nancy Pelosi's lectern. They were going to blow up the entire thing. That, 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 that would have been the equivalent, not just storming the Capitol, going in the basement and setting off 36 barrels of explosives to blow the entire thing up. That, that is the plot that was hatched but discovered. And uh, Guy Fawkes was arrested and they, they burn his effigy every year and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the history of the King James Bible, and that's all that we have time to talk about this morning, but the history of the King James Bible would lead one to believe that God had his hand 
all over this book. Point number three, language. Language. The language of the King James Bible. There are three stages in the development of the English language. The first is Old English. And that, that period ran from 450 to 1100 A.D. None of us could read or understand Old English. When, when they say the King James Bible is Old English, anybody who says that is displaying their ignorance. You should be nice to them, but they're ignorant. Okay? Old English was from 450 to 1100. You can't read it. I can't read it. The people who say the King James Bible is Old English definitely can't read it. Okay, Middle English then, 1100 to 1500. Middle English. You, you, you could probably kind of make that out, but not without a great amount of difficulty. I believe Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is the best example of Middle English. Then Modern English, 1500 A.D., to the present. So when was the King James Bible completed published? 1611. That's 111 years into modern English. Now there was still development, especially of spelling and grammar and so forth, within that time frame, but the English language reached its height, its peak, at the time of the translation of the King James Bible. And when we say the, the, the English language reached its height, we're, we, yes, we're talking about its beauty, its elegance, um, just, uh, just, just, just the wonder of the language. But we're also talking about its accuracy. Its accuracy. One of the major criticisms against the King James Bible is it uses the the personal pronouns thee and thou and thy and thine, and and like we can't understand that. Really, you can't understand. You don't know what that means. Now, I understand if you say I don't like that. I understand if you say we don't talk like that. But the truth of the matter is, according to what I've read, it's not like people talked like that in 1611. They wrote like that. They translated the Bible like that. But there's a very important reason. And I can explain it to you in two minutes. We've got these, these personal pronouns. Okay? Thee and thou and thy and thine and and then we've got these other pronouns, ye and you and your and yours. Now, the modern Bibles take out all the these and thous and thys and thines and replaces it all with you and your and yours. But there's a problem with doing that. Because if I say you, you don't know if I'm talking to you or if I'm talking to you. When I say you, I could be addressing one of you or I could be addressing all of you when there is no distinction when I use the word you. Now, in the King James Bible, if the pronoun starts with a T, if it's thee or thou or thy or thine, it is singular. It is, it is speaking to or of one person. When the pronoun starts with a Y... It's plural, ye, you, your, your, a multiplicity, a plurality of persons is being addressed or described. You do not have that distinction, you do not have that level of accuracy in a Bible that removes the, 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 the these, the thous, the thys, the thines. Jesus said to Nicodemus, verily I say unto thee, Nicodemus, I'm talking to you, ye, Everybody must be 
born again. So the King James Bible in its language, not only is it is it beautiful, not only does it have uh, rhyme and meter, not only does it lend itself to uh, memorization, not only is there, is there cross-reference uh, support that is destroyed by modern translations, but the, the language that is used is more accurate than the language of every Bible since 1881. The same with the est and eth verb endings. Nobody talks like that. Okay, nobody talks like that, but you can get it. And here's what that means. So a verb that ends in est or eth, it is continual and ongoing. It's not past, it's not present, it's present and ongoing, okay? Well, King James Bible is just too hard to understand. You know, in high school and college, they still make you read Shakespeare. And that's a little more difficult than the King James Bible. But nobody complains, nobody whines about it. Well, I did. Okay, uh, let's, let's do this one this morning. The translators, let's end with a scripture, Psalm 68 and verse number 11. Six, Psalm 68 and verse number 11. Our, our reasons thus far are the manuscripts, the history, and the language... Give you one more, the translators. The translators. I stated last week by confidence, not in the men who penned the inspired scriptures. They were sinful men, faulty men, and and God's the one who inspired his word. And, and just like that, our confidence is not in the men and women God used down through history to preserve the scriptures. The Lord took that responsibility upon himself. Thou shalt keep them. Oh Lord, so I do not believe the King James translators were inspired any more than I believe that the original authors were inspired. It's not the men who were inspired, it's the words that are inspired. If the men who were inspired are the men who, and the men died, then we're in trouble. <laughs> but the words are the inspired words of God preserved, and so we still have inspired scripture. But all that to say this, Psalm 68, 11, the Lord gave the word, there's inspiration, great was the company of those that published it. Now, I'm spiritualizing the application here, but I believe that the 47 translators of the King James Bible could be, could be described as a great company, according to Psalm 68 and verse number 11. Why do I say that? Uh, these men were pious men. Okay, these men were intellectual giants. In the hundreds of years since, mankind has made great advances in medicine and technology. Don't let that deceive you into thinking that mankind has made great advances in intellectualism. These guys were, were smart like we can't even imagine. There's a book that you ought to read at some point in your life. It's called Translators Revived by a guy by the name of Alexander McClure. I've got it in my office on my bookshelf. Brother James, I'm sure, has a copy as well. Let me give you, and, and, and he, he goes through the background and the history of many of these men who worked on the translation committee of the King James Bible. There were 47 of them, okay? Each, each phrase of Scripture, each word of Scripture had to go 15 through, through a, a step-by-step process of 15 different checks and balances by all of those guys to make sure they got the right word in every instance. Here's one of those guys that was working on the translation. His name was Lancelot Andrews. Lancelot Andrews, he's very smart. He graduated from, from I believe it was Cambridge, it was either Oxford or Cambridge, when he was 16. And then he went on to study and went on to teach and so forth. But here's what he would do once a year. He would take a vacation. He would spend it with his parents. It would, it would be a month-long vacation. And during that month, he would find somebody from whom he would learn a language that he did not yet know. 
language he had, he had never studied before. He'd take a month and study the language and become fluent in that language. And in that way, he mastered most of the modern languages of Europe. I want to say the man knew 16 different languages. But you believe the Greek word would be better rendered. Give me a break. I understand you have a strong concordance and ten options to choose from for every Greek word of the New Testament, but that doesn't impress me. Take a month-long Easter vacation and learn a new language and then come back and we can begin to try to be impressed by your giant intellect. I'm just saying the translators of the King James Bible, they were a, they were a great company of men. Next time we'll talk about the integrity of the translation, the perfection of the King James Bible, and the power of the King James Bible. One more book to recommend to you, and I'm not sure if it's on my recommended reading list or not. If it's not, it'll still count for credit. Uh, Tim Fuller wrote probably one of the best concise summaries of these issues. It's called Neither Jot Nor Tittle. I really, really enjoyed that book, and I believe you'd learn a lot from it. Neither Jot Nor Tittle. Okay, we'll finish this next time, Lord willing, which will not be next Sunday. Next Sunday will be uh, Lord's Supper, so the Sunday... After that, hope to see you then. You are dismissed. God bless you.